Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is, once again, unfortunately, me. I shouldn't say unfortunately. It makes it sound like I have low self-esteem. But this is, once again, a rare solo episode, the reason being of recent weight loss. Not actually the intentional kind, it was the stomach flu kind, which either was a virus or flu poisoning, which had me down for several days and several pounds, but the show must go on, so getting this out over the weekend, so I don't know how useful it will be for that many preachers out there, but hopefully someone will get some inspiration from it. So, on with it. Our first text is 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Really interesting story where we have Naaman the Syrian, this commander of the army of the king of Aram. He's this great man. He even says in this chapter that he stands next to the king. So it appears he's something like the prime minister. He's this pretty major figure in his kingdom. And though he's a mighty warrior, he suffers from leprosy. And when he sees this, when he figures this out, that one of the uh, one of his servants, a young girl who was captive from the land of Israel, taken captive during their military excursions, who was serving Naaman's wife, says to her mistress, if only my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king says, go, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. Now, what's interesting here is they get all this money and gifts and resources, a tremendous amount of money and resources, and a letter is sent with them to the king of Israel. And the letter entreats the king to cure him of his leprosy. And the king is shocked at this and he tears his clothes. You know, am I, am I God? No, I'm not God. I can't cure this guy. This is some sort of diplomatic trick or, or some sort of chicanery. And Elisha though hears that the king of Israel had torn his clothes and he sent, sends this message to the king and he tells him to send Naaman to him. So Naaman comes, you know, it, with all of his entourage, horses, chariots, and they go to Elisha's house, which I'm assuming is not this big opulent palace. And Elisha just sends him a messenger. Go, wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and shall be clean. And Naaman is angry and he thinks the prophet should come out and wave a magic wand or do something spectacular. And he goes away enraged. And his servants are like, well, if he had commanded you to do something difficult, would you have done it? How much more then if he just says, do this? So he does and he's healed. So it's such an interesting story because it, shows how I think all of us come to be cleansed and healed in many ways. I mean, David is paradigmatic, right? We, we often have to hear about healing from places that might 
be counterintuitive or even offensive to us. You know, this, this slave girl who is probably not someone immediately who Naaman is generally listening to. And yet, and yet, it's through her that he finds out that there's a prophet in Samaria. And it's interesting because he's a person of prominence. He's someone that probably has a lot of confidence in his abilities and his own reputation and identity and power. And and so he, you know, goes to his king and the king goes king to king and, you know, marshals resources and, and things like this. And yet these things are not effective. It's interesting too, because it shows kind of how counterintuitive Israel Israel's understanding of God here is, I think. And, and that normally the, the, the gods sort of are in league with the kings, right? The priests and kings are, are, are those sort of made in the image of God, uh, as opposed to in Genesis, everyone being made in the image of God. But here you have this idea that, it, and this is what religion is, right? Very often it's, if we do your bidding, you'll be disposed well to us. Or if we can, you know, give you what you want, you'll give us what you want. And here, what Na- Na- Naaman's attempt to procure divine blessing is just perplexing. I mean, the king of Israel doesn't even understand it. And then when he goes to, and so much of, of this is where the gospel is so counterintuitive to what our religious intuitions are, right? It's not give the gods a righteous life or their sacrifices or whatever, and they'll bless you. It's, it's, it's the blessing comes uh, unconditionally, you know, without strings. And then you're in debt to the gods. They're not, you're in debt to God for his free gift, not the gods indebted to you. And then when he goes and he, he's scandalized by the fact that he's got to wait in this river. And I love what his servants say. Look, if he'd asked you to go slay a dragon or do something, Herculean, you would have done it because that would have been fitting, right? To earn the gift, to earn this healing he so desperately sought. Like if if Elisha did something fantastical and amazing, or if he was called on to go on some sort of Herculean quest, that that would have seemed fitting, but that he would just go do something simple like wash in this river that he's like, surely, you know, the rivers in our country are way better. Why couldn't I just go there? So the whole thing is... You know, it's the humiliation that leads to his humility. And in the humiliation that leads to humility is his healing, not through religiosity or dependence on his own ingenuity or his own reputation or his own prosperity or power, but in it, it's in his letting go of those things and him counterintuitively submitting to what seems absurd. The other interesting thing too is that slave girl that, must have in some way harbored some resentment, I would have thought, to, you know, being a sort of prisoner of war taken from her family, probably, her family's probably killed. And yet she finds some sort of compassion, it seems, for Naaman, you know, that she uh, finds some space in her heart, which is totally remarkable. Uh, And a picture, I mean, if you're looking for a type of Christ, I mean, maybe, I mean, she is a suffering servant, right? She's literally Naaman's suffering servant who really has the right to judge him and yet extends him uh, this incredible measure of grace, which heals not just his body, but his heart. At the at the end of this story, he says, you know, now I know that there's only one God, one God anywhere, the God of Israel. There are no other gods, which even just to acknowledge the God of Israel would be one thing, but to say that you know, he's not a henotheist, which means, you know, you believe in one God who's better than all the other gods, but he is now a full-fledged monotheist where he doesn't believe there are any other gods. All this comes 
through the grace of a suffering servant. Next text is from Galatians, the sixth chapter. Uh, the optional readings are, I guess, is it, the the regular reading is seven through sixteen. The optional is adds one through six, which I think is probably for context a good idea to read. But there's this here it, it, at the end, towards the end of the letter here. Uh, at the at the end of the letter here, Paul is talking about. There's in the beginning section. He is talking about what happens if somebody is caught in sin, is caught up in struggle, and how they're restored with gentleness, and that in bearing one another's burdens, you fulfill the law of Christ. And this is great if you think those who are, are nothing think there are something they deceive themselves. Uh, and there's this great text: "Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You reap what you're, you sow." And then there's this conclusion. See what large letters I make when I'm writing in my own hand. So I guess Paul is dictating this probably, but he's writing this part in his own hand. And, and he's, he says, it's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh that try to compel you to be circumcised. They, of course, these Christians who are Gentile Christians, and there are what has been called Judaizers. They're believers in Jesus who are observing Jewish observing Torah and saying that this is the only way you can really be a believer in Jesus if if you have Jesus plus Torah observance and Jewish ritual purity and obedience. And he says that they're doing it somehow because they seemingly want to not be persecuted maybe by other Jews, right? So they can sort of play both sides of the fence. And But they say they don't even obey the law, but they want this burden on you. And he says, you know, they, they want to boast in your flesh. And he says, I don't want to boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, but a new creation is everything. This is great that, you know, here he's saying that something changes in light of the cross of Christ, that, that it becomes the cosmic center, not you or the world, and, and by the world meaning sort of the human culture animated by sin, not by the spirit, but these things, Christ becomes the center and relativizes everything else and reframes this the significance and relationship of everything else in the believer's life. And it's interesting too, there's this phrase, you fulfill the law of Christ. And you, you know, there's different commentators think this means different things. There are different theories, but it seems that it's the law that Christ has made his own by fulfilling it through his own faithful obedience and obedient faith that Paul seems to bear witness to, or it seems to be talking about here. And so that that law of Christ maybe something like the faithfulness of Christ, like Christ's own covenant faithfulness that we're living uh, in correspondence to that or in the shadow of that or bearing witness to the faithfulness of Christ. And there's this great uh, quote I came across by Gerhard Abling in a book called The Truth of the Gospel, an Exposition of Galatians. And 
he's talking about the different kinds of freedom in Galatians, the different kind of uh, ethics. He says, Paul is contrasting an ethics of law with an ethics of freedom. And he says, the former, the ethics of law, is based on unfulfillment, on the driving force of a demand. The latter is based on fulfillment, on the driving force of the spirit. The former seeks to attain life and righteousness. The latter grows out of gratitude that life and righteousness have been granted by grace. The former must pay laborious heed to infinite detail, never attaining the whole. The latter knows the spontaneity of the spirit through which the whole is grasped joyfully in the singular detail. The former necessarily concentrates on agents and their actions because they can never be sure of themselves. The latter counts on the self-forgetfulness of agents who enjoy freedom from themselves, concentrating entirely on who needs the agents and their actions. So that's great. I think it really gets at the spirit of the whole letter and, and what sort of the law of Christ and living in the spirit is all about. The gospel reading comes from the 10th chapter of Luke. Here we have the sending out of the 70, which the number is probably corresponding to the, in Genesis 10, that the nations of the world seem to number 70. Although, in, in, at least in the Hebrew text, in the Greek Septuagint, it's 72. But the, the 70 here is probably looking as some sort of, you know, kind of universal symbolic mission, but it's not going to be till the ends of the earth yet, but because before that would happen, we'd need the central certain events that they don't know that are going to unfold, but the Christ event, the death and resurrection of Jesus. It, so it's no mistake that the 70 or the 72 uh, are set, sent out as Jesus sets out for Jerusalem in chapter nine. So their saving missionary journey journey is deliberately placed within the context of his greater saving missionary uh, journey, his great, uh, his exodus, as it says in, I think the transfiguration passage in, in Luke is going towards Jerusalem. And I mean, the message and Luke loves writing about mission, but the message seems to be clear that all Christian mission proceeds from, and is based on what Jesus will achieve as a result of his own journey to Jerusalem. So this the the seventy are or seventy two are sent out, depending on your tradition or the tradition here, are sent out in pairs and they're to proclaim uh they're to take nothing with them, they're uh to proclaim peace to the house when they're accepted and remain with people, but if they're rejected, uh, you know, they're to uh you know, wipe the dust off their feet and go and sort of move on, you know, and uh, say that, hey, it's going to be, you've rejected, you know, the coming of the kingdom. And there's this great line, whoever listens to you listens to me, and whoever rejects you rejects me, and whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So there's a deep connection between the sent ones and the sender. They, the 70 uh, return with joy. They say, Lord, even the demons submit to us. And it's interesting, his response. He said to them, I watch Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I've given you great authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will hurt you. 
So Jesus isn't minimized that there's been a little bit of advancement for the kingdom here. I mean, that that is a good thing and it's happened. But nevertheless, he says, don't rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven, that they shouldn't be carried away with their own power or success or limited provisional success here. Uh, their role, like Jesus's role, is to restore people to God and welcome them into the kingdom. And their own sharing in the life of the kingdom and their relationship to the king is the greatest thing of all. It's 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 not a means to an end. It's an end in itself. And it, it, I'm thinking back to the Ebling passage I read at the end of the discussion of the Galatians text, that it's different between the ethics of law and the ethics of freedom, that, that the freedom comes from their participation in the kingdom and their union to the king. And so that's that needs to be kept at the forefront of their mind, uh, and that needs to sort of relativize any of their own successes or failures. Now, one thing I think is also really interesting here is that Jesus is, at, at the end of chapter 9, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. In Ezekiel chapter 21, the word of the Lord comes to the comes to Ezekiel, says, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuaries, prophesy against the land of Israel and say to the land of Israel, thus says the Lord, behold, I am against you and will draw my sword from its sheath and will cut, will cut off from you both righteous. I, I, I will draw my sword from its sheath and, and will cut off from you both the righteous and the wicked. So here we have Ezekiel told to set his face towards Jerusalem for the purpose of judgment. But in Luke, this new son of man sets his face toward Jerusalem. But he is the judge judged in Jerusalem's place and in the world's place. So here the judge is judged in our place. And it's a really interesting way in which Jesus is a different kind of son of man than Ezekiel, that he renders a different final judgment, a, a, a not guilty. He's, 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 he is rendering a judgment when he sets his face to Jerusalem, one of liberation for sinners for those who deserve a different kind of judgment, but receive a liberative and healing one, like that suffering servant of Naaman's who probably has the right to judge Naaman. Instead, she chooses to heal him. So it is with Jesus and with us. Thanks again for checking out this solo episode, my friends. And next week's episode will come to you uh, Monday. <laughs> it's normally scheduled, uh, providing I don't get another stomach virus and I'm knocked out for a better part of the week. Thanks so much again. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review and subscribe or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks again to, I guess, the stomach flu or food poisoning or some combination thereof for having me on the show as a solo operation this week, getting a little late jump on the episode this week. But thanks most of all to you for listening to Saxis. Till next time, friends, fare thee well.